0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte, the Institute
1: of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts.
2: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. A decade ago, scientists enabled a monkey to control a robot from the other side of the world with its mind. Now the technique has been extended to enable paraplegics to move robotic arms with their thoughts. And Elon Musk claims to be launching mind control technology this year. Today we're asking whether this marks the beginning of a new age in which humans control things around them with their minds alone. Joining us remotely to discuss mind control is panpsychism researcher Rupert Sheldrake, artificial intelligence expert Professor Susan Schneider and chairman of Humanity Plus Natasha Vita Moore.
3: What about mind control from the dictatorship itself where they can tell if I'm a dissident by my very thoughts so I think we have to do it right we have to move forward with careful public dialogue and Careful privacy, if you enjoyed guard today's
2: episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Mark Meyer. Rupert, start us off with your opening statement. Well,
1: obviously, we can control minds. You don't need to have implants and technology embedded in the brain or things inside our heads. I mean, I'm talking now and it's affecting everyone who's listening, affecting their brains and perhaps affecting how they're thinking. So uh, that's happening all the time. And we can control minds in through persuasion. I mean, the whole advertising industry is based on controlling minds through persuasion. Um, we can control minds through hypnosis, uh, which is perhaps more scary sometimes. Um, we control minds in all sorts of ways. And even when there are direct devices implanted in the brain, and I suppose that happens most commonly now with cochlear implants, um, people have to learn how to use these, and the cochlear implant doesn't directly control their mind. It uh, allows electrical impulses to go into the brain tissue, uh, and people have to take months learning how to interpret these. Um, And so there's a way in which we've already got Widespread, thousands, maybe millions of people have these devices. But our minds also, I think, reach out and affect people at a distance directly, perhaps in the more almost, not like Uri Geller, but one of the areas I've done research on is on telepathic influences on dogs. Dogs are much more sensitive than people, it turns out. And many people have dogs that know when they're coming home and go wait <laughs> at a door or window. I wrote a whole book called Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. Um, and this is something which is it's not just coincidence. We did lots of experiments. This is in peer reviewed journals with videotaped evidence. Um, we videoed the place the dog waits and the persons then called and told when to go home at a randomly chosen time they don't know in advance. They travel in a taxi to avoid any familiar car sounds or smells, and over and over again, the dog goes and starts waiting at the door uh, while they're on the way home, and massively significant statistically, and a skeptic who tried to discredit this got ended up with just the same results. So um, there's an example, I think, of um, something that's still not properly understood. Telepathy is very common. Um, Telephone is the commonest human kind, you think of someone and then shortly afterwards they ring. You say, that's funny, I was just thinking about you. Or you know who it is when the phone rings. And again, I've done lots of experiments on that, where there are four callers, you have to choose which, uh, the, we choose which of the four makes the call at random. They call the person, they know it's one of these four people, they have to guess who it is before they answer the phone, you know your caller ID. And the results are way above the 25% chance level. They average about 45% in non-film tests with a massively uh, significant result. So I think there's already evidence that minds uh, are actually much more than just the brain. Um, They can be influenced by all sorts of things, psychedelic drugs, persuasion, other people's words, torture, hypnosis, Um, can change our minds and influence them. But our minds can also have effects at a distance as shown in telephone telepathy and on the way they influence dogs at a distance. And this has nothing to do with technology. I think it may have some niche applications, uh, but obviously we're going to have to talk more about minds and how they work.
4: All right, Susan, can you give us an opening statement on, are we entering a new age where mind control will become a reality?
1: So
3: I'll focus on AI-based mind control now i should say i don't like the expression mind control because it already sounds dystopian (laughs)
4: Um, yes that's why i was trying to say control by minds but yes right
3: no it's okay um i i hope that we have control of our own minds and that nobody else does um i do think that we need to think of the future in terms of ai in a richer way so the historian michael best likes to talk about the jetsons fallacy so Think about the cartoon, The Jetsons, or um, the movie Star Wars. In both cases, all around us, there are AI bells and whistles all around the main characters. So there's clever robots, but the humans are unenhanced. In the future, I think that AI will go inside the head. And we're already seeing this with technology like, um, you know, Elon Musk's developments at Neuralink. And so the question here, when it comes to Mind control is how do we do it right? How do we avoid these dystopian scenarios in which um, my thoughts, when I say get a brain chip, uh, now become the fodder for the data capitalist economy. (laughs) So, So right now things are limited to my Google searches, but next it could be my very memories that get sold to the highest bidder or worse yet if i happen to live in an authoritarian dictatorship uh what about mind control from the dictatorship itself where they can tell if i'm a dissident by my very thoughts so i think we have to do it right we have to move forward with careful public dialogue and careful privacy guardrails
0: all right natasha start us off i agree with susan the term mind control brings up control. And that's something that always is, is an anathema to, to most of us who want to have certain freedoms and rights. And I, I agree with Rupert's um, prognosis about the the, the the potentiality of dogs understanding, and there's something else out there that, that we can't see, but it's there, um, and we identify with it, especially with our dog companions. But I'm going to approach this not through the lens of a dystopian possibility, but through a pragmatic rationality. And with that said, I'm going to refer to a project I did in 1996 called Prima Posthuman, where I designed the first whole body prosthetic. And with that, I also created the Metabrain, which is a forerunner to Elon Musk's Neuralink. Now, I mean as a forerunner in concept and in theory, not in engineering, I'm not an engineer, but as a conceptual futurist and thinking about the transhumanist agenda and what the future human could be like, it boils down to where we are in technology. The debate used to be in the early 1990s about AI or strong AI or AGI or nanotechnology. Well, AI came first and that is really a good thing because you can't have nanotechnology without AI. nanotechnology fits in because of nanomedicine and if we're going to have mind control that means that we're going to have to have a tertiary brain, um, an augment brain whether it's invasive or non-invasive and mine was the metabrain which sits literally on top of the brain with olympic and cognitive systems to help us better make decisions. And this ties into the issue that Susan brought up about ethics, who makes these choices. So in not having a dystopian future, we need to have a stronger sense of ethics. And having a stronger sense of ethics means we leave our morality our certain morals and our biases because all of us have that degree because we're human and our reptilian brain etc is why we need that tertiary brain so that the decisions we make can be more based on a, a balance in decisions so here the proactionary principle is crucial along with the concept of morphological freedom if a person wants to have mind control through using Neuralink or MetaBrain or some other system that integrates AI with nano systems to problem solve, to enjoy virtual reality or augmented reality, or different substrates or platforms to coexist on, then we do need to have that type of interface with the brain. But I don't think it's going to be um, where where we lose all, our rights to privacy. And I think that the work of Steve Mann is crucial in this conversation because his work with surveillance is us surveilling those surveilling us. So it's very important for us to look at the dystopic possibilities, the negative possibilities, and to try to push forward through practicalities and rules and laws and legislation and the mainstream support to have a stronger ethics so that we can have these advances and not be terribly afraid by them and not having someone like Bill Joy or others come out and say, we have to stop. Can't do it because of existential risk. There will always be types of risks. The bottom line is we have to find our way through that, navigate our way through those risks for a brighter, better future.
4: Can we start with uh, some psychology? Um, how does thought enable us to act? We tend to think we're in control of our own actions. You know, I can will something, and that makes my arm move. And if I'm holding something, then my arm moving makes the thing that I'm holding move. You know, it just seems, uh, at least, something that is in in practical ways predictable. Uh, do you think this is a actually good uh, explanation of this? Um, Rupert, you, you have very unorthodox views in this area. Why don't you start us off?
1: Well, of course, the standard materialist view, which is found in most universities um, and in neuroscience departments, says that the mind is nothing but the brain. Minds are what brains do. Mental activity um, is entirely a product of brain activity. Is an epiphenomenon of it or another way of talking about it um, or an illusion produced by brains. Now, personally, I think that that, that of course, leads to the famous hard problem in philosophy of mind. Um, And I myself think that if we're taking an approach of trying to understand how the mind interacts with the brain, works with it, for me, the most interesting starting point was suggested by the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead. Um, And he thought that the relation between mind and body Uh, was one in time rather than space. Normally people think of it as spatial, the mind's within, the inner life the outer world and so on. He thought that um, quantum physics shows that everything in nature is a process, even an electron is a process, it's a wave. And waves take time to wave by definition, and that's why you have the uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics, because brains, waves take time and space to wave in, so you can't have a wave at an instant because that even electrons are processes, um, they're in time and they have a past and a future pole. And Whitehead thought that the mental pole um, is the, the future pole, is the mental pole, the past pole is the physical pole. So the mind, as it were, acts um, on physical systems, even electrons, because he thought even though he was a kind of panpsychist, even electrons have some degree of experience. Um, so the mind acts from the future its causal direction is from the future or from virtual futures or from goals towards the past. Whereas regular physics causation, physical causation that we're also familiar with from science and common sense and everyday life is from the past towards the future. So we have two causal streams going in opposite directions intersecting in the present. And the uh, mental pole is concerned with possibilities in the in quantum physics, the shredding a wave equation tells you everything a particle, a quantum particle, could do. All those are possibilities. But when some, when it interacts, those collapse down, the so-called collapse of the wave function, to give a physical measurable fact. Well, that's the past pole now, and new possibilities open up. Similarly, uh, we think about possibilities. We choose among them. When we choose among them, then you have a physical physically measurable effect um, that's now in the past. So I personally think Whitehead um, pointed to the most interesting way of thinking about this that I've come across. Um, all the other ways I've come across don't seem to lead very far. This one also leads to a number of uh, rather surprising conclusions. You might be conscious of something before the uh, the decision um, the consciousness may lie in the future from the point of view of a measurable measurable decision. So it, it's, it ties in with certain brain studies. Anyway, that is my view. And uh, it's not many people are following up Whitehead's approach, but I think it's potentially the most promising.
4: Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. Uh, Susan, is there any accepted scientific understanding of how the will turns to action?
3: If we're talking about the brain willing something, there really two different issues here. I mean, one is willing as in volition that, you know, you talk about this in psychology, but there's, as you know, um, Mark, because you are also a philosopher, there's also the issue of the problem of free will, which is itself a Pandora's box. Um, Could we ever step out of the laws of physics and cause events through our mind somehow um, that, you know, are not lawfully determined by the amalgam of events and antecedent states in the world. So there are two issues going on here. Um, Now, I think current physics is a bit of a mess. I mean, I'm not being being insulting. I mean it like this. And I think every physicist will understand (laughs) that, you know, there's currently a contradiction at the heart of physics between quantum mechanics and relativity. And we're very interested in figuring out how we can make sense of these contradictions. And if you look in the domain of theories of quantum gravity, um, you know you see different attempts. Well, my own feeling to connect this back with the issue of volition and the will is: if you want to understand free will, and if you want to understand the nature of the mind, you know the. Consciousness and what philosophers call the mind-body problem. You have to actually look at how things will land in the domain of fundamental physics when these contradictions are resolved, if they ever are. So, for example, there are some theories right now that say space and time is emergent. If that's the case, then matter can't be fundamental. So in that case, Rupert is entirely right. You know that everything's process. I think he's right anyway. That that a process ontology, a process metaphysics, is where it's at. Right. But I think we can we can recover a notion of substance or matter from that, nevertheless.
4: Natasha, why don't you jump in here before uh, we have a, a, a free for all?
0: Mind, body, matter. Oh, god. Well, the Cartesian theory um, certainly has been wrestled within the philosophies. And I, you know, we will find out one day if we can copy or transfer the the um, neural network of the brain onto computational systems and turn the impulses or electrical charges into zeros and ones and C. So until that happens, we probably won't know. So there's always that wrestling with that issue of mind-body. But for my part, I see the, the mind as what the brain does, and it's a system of electrical charges and impulses and reactions between the dendrites and the synapses and um, all the stuff that goes on in the brain. Um, but the, the, it's not just in the, in the mind because that's the a central nervous system also correlates with the, cent- the, um, the exterior nervous system or the peripheral nervous system, which works directly and more now than ever with the exo, what I call anyway, the exoperipheral uh, nervous system, which is all the devices that we're using, all the electrical charges that are going around us, and even right now through this medium of zoom, um, through computational codes and algorithms and whatnot. And um, so the whole issue of mind-body may be a moot point because what is occurring in the brain, in the mind, is already happening outside the body anyway. And so I think that, Uh, I arrived at that through my PhD dissertation, and it was like, oh, well, there's there's no problem anymore because it is not just in the brain. The mind is in all the devices and and the systems that are in our peripheral um, agency. So then the issue becomes, and going back to Neuralink and Elon Musk, who... Um, was very interested and i don't know if he still is but in the concept of um are we living in a simulation so you get into the simulation argument and if it's all a simulation what does it matter anyway and if there is a matrix then where is the free will where's that decision is it mind over matter Um, the issue of matter there is matter um, whether you want to call it physical matter or you know Atoms and, and neutrons um, communicating matter, it still is there, whether it exists in the brain or it's really there. Um, we don't know. And that's the bottom line, too, and, and why quantum mechanics and quantum physics is in that fuzzy area of muddiness right now, because it sounds so lovely and wonderful and interesting. But the bottom line is time is in control. So when we talk about mind control, it's really time control. We live in a linear time-based existence in this material, physical world that we are coexisting in. If some other world does exist, we don't know it because we're not there. We're here. So unless we're communicating in that other world, whether it's a simulation or some type of quantum system, Then we would communicate through that, say, yes, of course it's real because we're here, but we don't know. And so pontificating about it is exciting and having all these theories is really exciting as well. But the problem still exists that we're here now. And the key element that we don't have control over is time as a continuous process of events. And while we may one day be able to slow down time, reverse time, invert time, we cannot today.
4: you you started by saying what the the mind is what the brain does you you know asserting some kind of materialism but then at least metaphorically uh you know if you want to talk about what mind is the fact that you're saying that we're extending action at a distance is already possible we're doing it over zoom right now Yes. Um, but I'm still seeing that there's probably a, a difference between your, your view and Rupert's view, which so. is a more literal. Yes. Rupert, do you, can you briefly
1: respond? Well, I mean, uh, we, we agree about the importance of time. We agree, agree about the um, polarity of time. Um, and the, there's a real difference between past and future. There's a difference between memory and desire and and so on. So I think that the, we agree about that. Um But we we might even agree if we think minds are what brains do, uh, because if brains involve these reversed causes, I think in time, reversed causalities. um, I mean, there's the mental aspect. It works through brains and brains are material. But the thing is, we don't really know what matter is. The the current debate that uh, panpsychists have, have got going is saying, well, Uh, Parasitists like Galen Strawson say, well, matter's not what people used to think it was, dumb, inert stuff. It's it's process, and it's a process um, which uh, has some kind of a degree of consciousness or experience, even at the electron level. Um, So if that's true, uh, then a brain isn't just brute matter and just electrical impulses and things. The nerve cells themselves, and even the electrons whizzing along in the nerve impulses, Uh, have some kind of mind uh, associated with them. And so you then have the possibility of mind acting upon mind if rather than mind acting upon matter, because if matter is mindless and minds are matterless, there's old Cartesian dualism. Uh, If we don't have that view, if we have the idea that matter itself has some kind of mind, then our minds could work on the matter of the brain and interact with them and be what brains do. But the matter of the brains is not what old-style materialism would have said it was.
4: Now, Susan, does your embrace of of process philosophy, Mm -hmm. you said you agreed with Rupert on that general approach, does that extend to panpsychism? I mean, I I don't know that panpsychism necessarily comes out of process philosophy, but they certainly are, in Whitehead at least, they go together.
3: I'm friendly to panpsychism, but I think it goes too far. Rupert just said, cells have minds. I don't think there's anything like a mind at that lower level if you're thinking of mind in the sense of any kind of sophisticated, complex thinking system. But if we water down panpsychism a bit i do think there's a case for the idea that experiences at the ground level um, of physics so you know that is to say that if you think sophisticated informational systems like brains come from something that physics explains that seems reasonable and that brains have experience it's not crazy at all to think that the primitive stuff the events because we're talking about a process ontology that you know the events that eventually science will explain perhaps when in the context of theories of quantum gravity will have the basis of experience in them even at the ground level because it's only the ground level events together with the laws of nature that give rise to complex systems like brains. So consciousness has to come from somewhere. But I wouldn't go as far as saying that fundamental particles are minded. To me, it's almost like a category mistake. Um, You know, my cat has a mind, perhaps. It has a brain. I mean, these are conscious systems of a suitable level of complexity, whereas, Fundamental particles, unless there's something really strange going on, don't have anything like sophisticated mentality. Maybe what I'd like to say is they have proto-mentality. So I'm actually, I hate to unroll this big word, but I'm very sympathetic to a view called pan proto because it's these ingredients, which we might call proto-mentalistic, that do give rise to the phenomena of consciousness. I
4: think. Let's turn to the practical, because that's the way we sold this uh, lecture. Uh, (laughs) What is the potential of this mind-controlling technology that is using the mind to control things at a distance? Uh, Natasha, why don't you start us on this? What, What can you say something about the potential of this technology and its risks?
0: The potential is truly amazing and so needed for people who are in a position where their, their physical system is just not communicating with their brain. And so you have this, this relationship with a machine that is doing it for them, where they can use their, their mind to pick up a, a book and, uh, or turn on the TV or, or you know let the dog out or whatever it is. I think this is crucial. I mean, being a prisoner of your body and not being able to direct it to do what you want it to do must be an awful thing to experience. So I think one of the best outcomes of the whole field of mind control or working with the, the neurological system to function outside the body is essential. But. Looking beyond that, even in space exploration, we're telling a robot to do a certain deed on a, maybe on a a satellite or in a, um, a space habitat. And this is really important too, but it's not so much mind control because we have the robot doing it and we're programming it to do a specific task. So then it gets back into the area we were at with artificial intelligence and narrow AI, which is task oriented, but then going further to artificial general intelligence, where that would really enhance and increase the capabilities of mind over matter or mind control. And I think that, that looking at virtual reality, augmented reality, and those interfaces, we're certainly going to be able to use our mind outside our body with digital systems as environments, and not just for gaming or playing, but for existence, for working, um, communicating, having relationships, et cetera. So mind over matter is already happening. Um, But that direct area that you're asking about, Mark, is is crucial. Some of the um, benefits are obvious for um, those with diseases or injuries that that can't use their bodies Um, and where prosthetics leaves off, this ability uh, picks up. The integration with the brain is a very um, risky business. Uh, to go into the brain and start putting chips in it and wires and whatnot so that it functions with the body needs to be done cautiously and carefully and biohackers stay away that's not an area to biohack Uh, however the greater risks are using uh, mind control to manipulate and if War stays as part of the human condition and fighting and battling, then it becomes a very serious ethical issue of who has the mind control and how will it be used to damage other people. Until the human, our humanness, gets beyond its current state of of bias and of anger and and all the the traits that are uh, that really cripple us psychologically, we won't be able to even imagine the benefits of it truly. We've got to get beyond this this area of of uh, the need to have wars and battles and fights and send out ugly and mean messages on social media platforms and whatnot. So why is that endemic to our nature? Why are we doing that? It's it's, it's sad. So in my view, mind over matter and the integration with the brain and the mind uh, outside the body is crucial. But my concern is that we haven't grown up enough as in our humanity to be able to use it with the wisdom that would truly benefit our species.
3: Earlier in our discussion, there's this talk of a tertiary brain and um, you know, that may be what Musk is hoping for as well. And Natasha, I'm not sure if I have it right, but is the idea a sort of intellectual or perceptual exoskeleton rather than actually replacing, invasively replacing parts of the brain
0: with chips? The, fr- the, the first option, it would be, um, it could be in the brain, but it, uh, it could be an exoskeleton as well. But it works with the limbic system, our fight or flight, as well as our, our um, you know, our thinking rationale, emotions, all of those things together to, aid in problem solving, so it's a prosthetic in that way.
3: I've been trying to get it across to people that the idea of actually replacing the brain with chips is not necessarily the path forward because we don't know about the neural basis of consciousness in humans, of course, and we don't know if microchips could ever be substituted for consciousness as a neural basis. So when it comes to the future of enhancement, I think it's great to develop enhancements. And I think, in fact, we're stupid if we don't see that many countries will do it, even authoritarian dictatorships. So what we have to do, though, is not fixate on what I think are almost like misleading philosophical views. We don't know until we run tests. Whether we can put microchips in the parts of the brain that underlie conscious experience. So, I like the idea of a tertiary layer, if you will, um, and not assuming that replacement is the way to go. Furthermore, I get nervous when people talk about replacing the brain because I think it may lead to this phenomenon which I call brain drain, the <laughs> death of the subject who you know, starts replacing parts because for all we know, the mind and the brain could be so closely related that you die when replaced too much of the brain. Like we just don't know. These are philosophical issues that have no easy solution.
4: Yeah. Can we bring Rupert in here? Because it seems like your picture has a, a, a disconnect between the, the matter and uh, that is providing, you know, the particular neural stuff and the form, what Aristotle would, the form that's being imposed on this, that is instead it's a morphogenetic field, it's something like that, but maybe I'm misunderstanding. I mean, would you be as worried as Susan is about uh, brain replacement uh, resulting in the death of the individual?
1: Well, I suppose, I I think brain replacement would result in the death of the individual, but um, I mean, I see all this uh, sort of tinkering with the brain and putting bits in it as a kind of luxury for uh, uh, that's a, a kind of um, very expensive luxury. I mean, Stephen Hawking was an example of someone who was very severely disabled, who was certainly aided by computers and technology, but without brain implants. So um, he got on astonishingly well uh, in spite of his terrible infirmity. Um, so, I, you know, it's it's something that... Can be done, will be done, and so on. But I see it as a kind of niche area, and um, I see the the really interesting questions as to be, uh, you know, how minds work and how uh, things are related. Uh, I think through fields. Uh, my own view of how the, the mental works with the physical—it's not exactly on topic now, but you did ask me—is um, uh, is through fields and. The, the mind, the brain isn't just a set of sort of wires and, and nerve impulses and neurotransmitters. It, uh, it's swept by electrical fields. We can measure them with electroencephalographs, all these different brain rhythms, are uh, field movements over the brain. And these fields are by their very nature integrative. And um, the chips are not working on a field principle. They're working on sort of electronics. Of course, they have fields because all electrical and magnetic phenomena have fields. Um, but they're not integrating with those fields, which I think are the principal inter- interface between our thoughts and our minds and our brains. I think they're working through the interface of the electrical fields in brains. And if, if we have a non-field technology, these chips that are just treated as discrete things that slot into sort of nerves in some way or another, um, I don't think it's going to work very well because I think these are field phenomena. Um, and that, I think, is the link between the mental and the the physical aspect of the brain.
4: Does this sort of tinkering actually reveal anything philosophical? Does it does it cast any light on the the ancient philosophical question of freedom of the will? Let, let's put this back to you, Susan.
3: Like I talk in my book about going into a center for mind design and buying all kinds of funky enhancements, like adding, you know, a chip for. Um, Great mathematical skills, and adding another one to become, uh, you know, a Zen master and whatnot. So suppose, suppose I add one or two, but I live, I live in a bad place. I, I live in an authoritarian dictatorship, and they're messing with my chip. And I walk into a Starbucks, and I do something really violent, but I don't even remember. Thinking that I wanted to do this, so usually we think, you know, belief and desire cause action, action is intentional, but instead some little chip, some little module in my brain causes me to carry out the action unintentionally, and so then I go to court and I say, my chip made me do it. I mean, that I think raises some really interesting issues in the field of philosophy of action and concerning free will. But I don't know that it would transform debates on the nature of free will. I mean, I think, you know, the free will debate is really about reconciling human action with physical events in the world, understanding whether we could like break free of the laws, if you will. And this connects up with some of the things Rupert was saying. But I do think it does pose some really interesting questions, legally, ethically, morally, and it relates to issues involving
0: the will as well as philosophy of action, the field of philosophy of action.
4: Natasha, do you want to jump in here?
0: The bottom line of philosophy is existence, search for knowledge, and what is existence? Why are we here? And free will does tie to that very tightly. Are we making the decisions? Is God making the decisions? Do decisions happen, and is it all planned out before? Um, who's in charge? And uh, and part of any system, we're all variables, and the effects on the system are produced by the variables, and the effects on the variables are produced by the system. So it's it's this continuous um, cybernetic type of a beautiful interplay of feedback and control. So I personally don't deal with free will. I, I, it's not something that I'm particularly interested in. What I'm more interested in is taking a look at cognitive reasoning and within the, the realms of philosophy, why we do the things we do, which ties more into the psychology and uh, historical anthropology of, of humans and in, in culture. and what I can't see is probably there, so I have no argue, argument with, with Rupert. I mean, his theories are perfectly fine, and I listen, and it may not be my view, but it's it's perfectly fine. I think the the bigger issue in, in the deeper dive is um, how will this mind control um, affect our species and how will we steer going back to Susan in this to get away from the dystopian future and to be responsible about it for free will the hell with free will what does that matter when there are more serious issues such as someone like Stephen Hawkins who needs to communicate because his mind was so brilliant but he was not an outliner and he should never be looked as as an outlier and it wasn't that expensive and he could afford much more of it and that should be allowed for everyone. And that technology that Stephen Hawking used, however brilliant and engineered beautifully, was just so basic. We've gone so far beyond that that simple technology. So what Stephen Hawking had was not, um, you know, elitist at all. He took advantage of his position and um, his illness and presented. Uh, a picture to the world of what it could be like for someone who has no control or very teeny teeny little control over over their bodies that should be allowed and afforded to everyone and not just an elite or someone who's a famous scientist. But the interesting, and this ties into the discussion, so I'll just wrap up with this. The interesting thing is Stephen Hawking, before he passed away, was very concerned about existential risk and wanted to stop artificial intelligence going into artificial general intelligence or strong AI. And that's really interesting because without that narrow AI, he would never be able to communicate it. And take a look, going back to our earlier discussion, to Elon Musk with uh, Neuralink. Elon Musk was part of that existential risk community, uh, and very you know opposed to advances in artificial intelligence. That someone has to, we need machine ethicists. And now he's so transhumanist. You know, you go, what? What's coming out of his his um, his language is is anything. Um, can't be anything but transhumanist. So as people come around, once they see that there's a need for the technology, a need for the science, and that and where that need is, should always, in my view, be to those who can use it effectively and wisely, and for experimentation, for research and development. So. Um, Again, I, my, my um, free will is not something I think about, and mind control is very serious as a matter.
2: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. Look around. You can find cars like these on Autotrader.